From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We first spoke with author Kali Fajardo Anstein as the pandemic forced people into isolation. Today, we reconnect to see how life continues to change. I'm working with just less and trying to do more, um, but that's just how it has to be because there's really no other way I might have to go get a job in, in retail or something like that right now. An author rallying to make it through the pandemic. Plus, embracing the dark as a resource in Colorado. That's an environmental consideration that we ought to think about preserving like we try to preserve the clean air that we breathe and clean water that we drink. And from pedestrian footbridges to microenergy, two Colorado companies get a nod for their innovation to fight climate change. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. How many years ago was March at this point? We live in an altered world where a global pandemic, its restrictions, and its impacts are part of our daily reality. But before grabbing a face mask to go outside was a habit, and before terms like social distancing were familiar, we were checking in with Coloradans as the pandemic descended on the U.S. We wanted to know about the disruptions they were facing. But time doesn't stop, not even for COVID-19. And we're following up to see how people's lives have changed, how they've adapted, and how the novel coronavirus continues to affect them. Kali Fajardo-Anstein, award-winning author of Sabrina and Karina, is one of the folks we spoke with. Here's what she had to say on March 12th. They really hit hard this week. After South by Southwest canceled, I think it sort of set the standard for all the festivals. This morning I woke up and I saw even more cancellations. So virtually my entire calendar for this quarter of the year is is wiped out. So um, this is how I earn my income is speaking. Um, I think a lot of people think authors are they're making money off their books. But for some of us, that takes several years to earn out our advances. So this was going to be the majority of my income for the year. I had found the most perfect apartment for me, dream apartment from 1906 in Congress Park. And I went to go sign the lease yesterday and I, I projected my income for the year. And I was like, I can't do this. I cannot put myself into an apartment right now. Um, so it's it's going to be a serious uh, thing I have to work around. I have my family and my community to help support me. But yeah, I've I've lost all of my income for the next several months. At the time, Fajardo Anstein was living with her parents. I called her up last week. Okay, so catch me up. How are things going? Yeah, things have really, um, in some ways, they're a lot more stable. And then, of course, they're much more unstable. I was able to get an apartment right downtown in Denver, thanks to an affordable housing program. So I'm in a mixed building now that has market rate apartment units and also income capped units. And that has just really been a godsend because now I have space to work on my next book. So I'm just deep in edits on my my follow-up novel to Sabrina and Karina. And I've been doing some online teaching and some Zoom events and things like that. But yeah, my speaking events have They've dried up into next year, even in some cases now. Oh, wow. And the last time we talked, you explained, you know, that's where a significant portion of your income, that's what it comes from, is speaking. So how has the online teaching and speaking, has that made up for it at all? No, not. It's been a very, very significant drop. Yeah, I'm working with just, yeah, just li- working with less and trying to do more. Um, but that's just how it has to be because there's really no other way I might have to go get a job in in retail or something like that right now. 
And for those online gigs, I mean, obviously the travel is not involved, but how is the work in just setting up those virtual events? Yeah, that's been kind of interesting. I, I bought myself a selfie ring light, <laughs> so I, I'm well lit. Um, and I, I have like a little area. But the thing about getting an apartment and having a space is before I was having to do my Zooms in a house with lots of people. And I was worried that somebody would come in or there would be yelling in the background. So they're pretty stressful because you can't really control your environment the same way we used to when we would go to events and go to teach in person. Right. So tell me what kind of teaching have you been doing? Yeah, I've been doing creative writing. Um, I did a week-long workshop that was all online. It originally was supposed to be at Reed College in Oregon. And just doing events where I talk about the book. And tell me about the writing community that you've heard from. How are people doing? Is Are people a pretty similar boat? Um, there were a number of national arts funds that were set up. There was one that a lot of different arts organizations pulled together their money and they gave out $5,000 grants. And these were just like huge lifesavers that showed up for a lot of us. Um, so the arts community has really rallied around each other. And they know that we don't really make money in a, like a traditional um, every every month, every two weeks way. So it's been it's been really helpful. And have those arts funds helped you stay afloat? Yes. Um, like early on in the pandemic, I was able to get some of those funds. Of course, they're not renewable. They don't come back. But those funds were what originally allowed me to get into an apartment. Just for people who don't have a concept, what does income look like for a writer? I think people have an idea of like, oh, once you get your book out, you just have a steady check coming in. But that's not how it works, right? No. So I have a two-book contract. And so it sort of works like a record deal where you have to earn out the amount that they've invested. Um, and until I actually publish the second book, I won't be able to earn out anything. Um, and so I'm not getting a paycheck from my book sales. And that probably won't happen for a number of years. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of work up front. And then yeah. the hope and you get a Yeah. you get a small amount as like a, a seed money. Mm-hmm. I saw on Twitter that you booked a place to stay at the Brown Palace Hotel in downtown Denver as a sort of writer's retreat. Tell me about that. Yeah, so I've um, I've never done something like that for myself just because the rooms have always been so expensive. And there's a chapter in my next book, my novel, that actually takes place in the Brown Palace. And it's, it's a pivotal part of the book. And I walked by the other day and I just felt this urge. And I was like, you know, I have a little bit of extra money now. I can afford these room rates. And I think it'll be really good for my writing if I just sort of immerse myself in that. Um, The Brown Palace was pretty empty. Uh, Nobody was around. And it it felt really, it did feel safe in that way. And there was hand sanitizer stations and masks all over. So I'm really excited. (laughs) And you mentioned in your tweet that it has some family significance for you, right? Yeah, so my grandfather worked at the Park Lane Hotel. He was a waiter and at some other um, tea rooms across Denver. And that is how he earned his living and saved enough money to buy their home in Five Points. And no one in my family really ever stayed at these like fine, elegant hotels that we would talk about in this sort of mythical way. So I'm just excited because it sort of feels like completing like full circle. Like now our family members get to be guests at these places and we can work there too, but we can also be guests. Right. And you're working on this next book. Can you tell me anything about it? Yeah. So the next book is set in Denver during the depression in the 1930s. And it's based on the lives of my great grandma and her sister. And it also goes into uh, larger Colorado in 
all the way into the 1870s up into the 1930s. So it's a multi-generational tale. It's really interesting working on that right now as Denver faces its own economic hardship and then just thinking about what we went through in the 30s compared to what we are going through today. Right. And I imagine that you had the idea for this book before COVID hit. Has that changed the way that you write it at all or influenced it? Yeah, definitely. So I started this book seven years ago, um, and I've been working on it a long time, but it's now I have a greater understanding of what it means to have to go to the food bank, why people are on relief rolls, and how important programs like unemployment are. Um, I just have a much greater understanding of what it feels like when there's so much economic downturn in a city. Yeah. And where are you in the timeline for the book? I am in drafting edits right now, so I'm hoping to have it done by the fall and turned into my editor, and then I'll write another book for everybody. That's Kali Fajardo-Anstein. She's the author of Sabrina and Karina, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. She's one of the people who shared her story of disruption at the beginning of the pandemic. We'll continue to follow up with other people we spoke with earlier in the year and share how their lives have changed. Having a baby in normal times is stressful enough. Now the pandemic has complicated hospital policies for expectant mothers, limiting visitors and sometimes separating newborns from their moms. Here's CPR's Claire Cleveland. Denver resident Kat Garcia was pregnant with twin boys when she contracted COVID-19 in late March. She ended up at St. Joseph's Hospital struggling to breathe. My mom was in the hospital with me for three days when they had to take me to the ICU. They told her, like, you can't go with her. You need to go home. I was upset and crying about that. And so now my only support that I had was gone. She was fully sedated for an emergency C-section. But I just remember the doctor talking to me and was like, okay, just need to keep breathing and then you're going to fall asleep. When I woke up, that's when it really hit me. Like, I don't get to see the delivery. My husband wasn't there for the delivery. She wouldn't see her twins, Cal or Bruce, for another 19 days. While she recovered, she could watch them on a silent video monitor with other moms who were also COVID positive and without their infants. Until April 4th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advised separation of COVID-19 positive mothers from their newborns in all cases. Phoebe Montgomery, a midwife and nurse practitioner at Denver Health, was shocked when she first heard that her hospital would be abiding by the policy. And I just remember thinking, surely that can't be right. <laughs> like it, it just, it, it was like it didn't compute. It was like a dial tone. You know, it just didn't make sense. It's widely known that skin-to-skin contact, breastfeeding, and bonding between mom and baby immediately after birth have long-term benefits. Montgomery says balancing the unknown risks of COVID-19 against that knowledge has been difficult. And it felt like predominantly there was just a lot of fear because there's a newborn involved. You know, that's really hard for a lot of people to imagine, you know, a newborn getting the coronavirus. Health professionals wonder whether the CDC, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and other organizations made the right decision in their call for separating newborns from their moms. Carla Gonzalez-Garcia, policy director for the Colorado Organization for Latina Opportunity and Reproductive Rights, says the separation policies were made against the interests and health of pregnant people. There was no research, there was no information on how was was affecting people that gave birth 
and their newborns. So everything was just reactionary. There is no hard data on when to separate and why, nor how many babies have contracted COVID-19 from their moms. Today, hospitals are advised by the CDC to, quote, strongly consider separation. Colorado hospitals, however, are doing things differently. Moms and doctors work together to make a decision that's best for her and her newborn. But each patient is different, and each COVID-19 case presents differently. For Gladys Ibarra, the only symptom she noticed just days before she was due to deliver was a loss of taste and smell a mild symptom of COVID-19. On May 4th, she delivered her daughter, Ophelia. She wore a mask throughout the delivery. Afterwards, the nurses placed her baby on her chest. Of course, the biggest question was like, what about my baby, right? What happens now? Am I able to bring her home with me? After delivery, my sense of taste and smell were both relatively back. I didn't have any fever. I didn't have any cough. She was tested twice for COVID. Both results were negative. Ibarra was able to take Ophelia home. She was asked to wash her hands and wear a mask before holding her or breastfeeding. But she says there weren't many other specific rules or suggestions. And she wondered if it would be enough. Garcia, on the other hand, feels torn on why her experience was so much more extreme than some other mothers. The recommendations she got were inconsistent. And in the end, she wonders how those 19 days away from her twin boys will affect them. I just think developmentally, like all these little things that are normal, that there's research done on how beneficial it is. And now I am sitting here thinking like, what kind of negative impact is going to come from this? Throughout the rest of the pandemic, hospitals will continue to look at their policies and make calls about separation on a case-by-case basis according to national guidelines. But they're still figuring out how to keep babies safe and support mother and infant bonding. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. When we come back, it's a town with one stop sign, one restaurant, and a legacy of marble. Answering Colorado wonders on Colorado Matters. This is CPR News. Evergreen members make ongoing monthly donations in support of CPR. If you're an Evergreen member and have recently received a new credit or debit card, please update your information on file. Updating your credit or debit card will ensure that your investment in the programs you love is current. Easier still, switch to giving directly from a bank account. Your ongoing commitment to supporting in-depth news and music on CPR makes an impact. Call member services to update your card information at 800-722-4449. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. In the remote northern reaches of Gunnison County, there's a speck of a town called Marble. It's home to about 100 people, one stop sign, and one restaurant. Michelle Saxer of Denver wrote to Colorado Wonders because she passed through there about 20 years ago and noticed chunks of marble in the river running through town. Since then, she's wanted to know more. Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg brings us the story of a small town that's played a surprisingly large role on the national stage. Driving into marble on its sole paved road, it's hard to miss those white stone blocks, some as big as pianos, scattered around. There is marble dumped from the town of Marble almost to Carbondale. That's nearly 30 miles. Alex Menard, who runs the local history museum, says those imposing slabs were actually scraps from the nearby quarry. 
thrown off train cars to help build up the rail bed. I would say half the people who come here don't know that the Lincoln Memorial was made here. Not Lincoln himself, but the gleaming building that surrounds him with its 44-foot-tall columns. The total number of pieces is 4,130 pieces. All quarried, shaped, and polished here more than a century ago. Marble from marble was used in the Hearst Castle, the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and Denver's Union Station. It's even been named the State Rock. It's called Yule Marble, after one of the first prospectors to find it. And while it only exists in this tiny corner of Colorado, Menard says the quarry has been owned by companies from all over the world. Including English people, American people, Canadian people, and two different Italian companies. The quarry is not open to the public, but the current owner, Colorado Stone Quarries, did offer a peek inside with a video featuring its Italian marketing director, Marco Pizzica. So I'm from Italy. My hometown is uh, Carrara, that is considered the capital in the world for the excavation of white marble. But as Pizzica shows off the smooth, cathedral-like interior walls, he says this marble is special. It's amazing. Many years of my life all over the world to see quarries. Not even in Carrara you have a quarry with uh, such a pattern and uniformity. That pattern and uniformity makes it a hot ticket in Italy, where 90% of the stone is shipped, according to the company's site. The rest is sold in the U.S. Even with that global reach, the town of Marble has boomed and busted. When the quarry closed during World War II, it took nearly 50 years to reopen. During that time, Marble lost much of its population, but kept collecting characters. Well, my full name is Paul Edward Harris, Jr. But around here, he's known as... Late King Paul. That's what they call me after living in Late King Basin for going on 43 years. He's thin with a long white beard and an ever-present wide-brimmed hat. He splits his time between his trailer and marble and an old miner's cabin where he's the caretaker. It's only a few miles away, but can take six hours on snowshoes. Not bad for an old geese. Yeah, tell you right, Sonny. <laughs> Where's the beer? Lead King Paul feels at home in the rugged mountains, under deliciously dark nighttime skies. And it's, it's beautiful. I love it. I love it. Even as marble changes, he remembers when the main road was dirt and only got a few cars a day. Now, summer traffic can be constant. Uh, yeah, kind of noisy, huh? I know. I know. God. Over at Beaver Lake Lodge, owner Karen Good and her family have been here 18 years, and she's watched marble be discovered. Sometimes every 15 minutes, people are coming to ask for, you know, where's the trailhead? Can we use your bathroom? Where am I? You know, how do you get to Crystal? The weather-beaten remains of the Crystal Mill and its adjacent waterfall is one of the most photographed images in all of Colorado. It's only about five miles away, down a narrow four-wheel drive road, which is now often crowded with Jeeps and ATVs. We don't even go up into the backcountry on weekends right now because it's just too busy. Like many residents, Good supports having some kinds of limits on visitors. So she doesn't know exactly what that would look like. But I'm also not one to, like, move somewhere and close the door behind me. Especially when she knows how great it was for her sons to grow up in this rustic place, 
without cell service or high-speed internet. Monique Villalobos, who also grew up here, recently returned with her husband to raise their small kids and also to make art from the town's namesake. So this is a green piece of marble. Which she can polish into little bears and other shapes. It's inspiring to work here in her backyard, the same place etchings were done on the Lincoln Memorial all those years ago. She feels part of a great tradition. I think people are starting to wake up and realize that marble has a very important national history. Also, it's just home. She shows her jewelry at her dad's gallery in town. Mario Villalobos arrived in marble in the 70s when he was just 18. He's visited places since then that could be called paradise, but has never fantasized about moving. Nah, man, we're going back to real paradise. We're going back to marble, you know. (laughs) Even with the crowds, Villalobos says marble's wildness doesn't feel too far away. And as long as the bears come to my yard and try to get into my dumpster like last night, I'm cool with it, you know. The deers were out here this morning. Uh, Last year we had two big old bull moose out here. You kidding me? As long as they keep showing up, I don't care. And his buddy, Lead King Paul, says it's not just about the wildlife. You know, the best friends I ever had in my life are right in his tone. I'm not kidding you. Wow. As he grabs his guitar, he says that even though he may have crabbed about the extra tourists, he keeps telling himself the same thing. Yeah, remember, Grandpa, that's life. And it's so beautiful and awesome. You can't blame him for wanting to get out of the city or, you know, wherever, and come up here and visit this. This place he knows he'll never leave. In Marble, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Don't walk you home. Don't walk you home. Don't walk you home. Out of the rain. What question do you have about our state? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Last time that we went on a date, both brothers went back, put up a cap and said, Watch it down, can you get it back up This month, the Republicans and Democrats officially picked their party candidates for the president, and there's a large group of unaffiliated voters in Colorado who are not loyal to one party or the other. Do you fall into that camp? Are you unsure about whether you will vote for Donald Trump, Joe Biden, or a third-party candidate, or whether to vote at all? How likely are you to split your vote when it comes to the U.S. Senate race to try to ensure that no one political party has complete control? We're putting together a panel of voters to hear what candidates and issues will drive decisions heading into Election Day. Email us at coloradomatters at CPR.org. Again, that's coloradomatters at CPR.org. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. you, what was the first state to legalize marijuana? Would you say Colorado or maybe California? Try further down south. I am really proud that I can say that this little state did this. 
For a long time, they would say other people did it, but they didn't. We did. And it's good to be the OG. <laughs> the fascinating story of legalizing medical marijuana in America's deep south on the latest episode of On Something on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado has long been home to oil and gas companies. The industry is a major employer here. But in recent years, smaller green energy companies have started to crop up in Colorado. They're innovating energy production and working to fight climate change. Two Colorado companies won an international competition last week and that rewards new ways to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. Joining us to talk about the groundbreaking work their companies do to bring clean energy to billions of people in the developing world are Avery Bang, CEO of Bridges to Prosperity in Denver, and Emily McAteer, CEO of Odyssey Energy Solutions in Boulder. Avery and Emily, welcome to the program. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Avery. Your, com- your companies each just won $25,000 Keeling Curve Prizes, named after scientist Charles David Keeling, who first measured the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The rising levels of CO2 over time are known as the Keeling Curve. Avery, Bridges to Prosperity builds footbridges in developing countries to connect people to what's known as the rural last mile. What do footbridges do for the communities that you serve? Yeah, thanks for having us. Bridges to Prosperity is really focused on people who walk everywhere. So imagine walking to school, walking to work, walking to the markets, to the healthcare clinics. And what we're really focused on is creating last mile connection through bridge building. And what we are able to do is to improve health outcomes, education outcomes, and really importantly, also help rural communities have income rise at the household level. And it's this basic low-tech solution that helps people get to work and get to health care and get to school. Emily, Odyssey Energy Solutions builds a software platform that helps accelerate the construction of solar energy microgrids in the developing world. Here in most of the United States, we have huge electrical grids. Why not just replicate them in countries in Africa where you work, like Rwanda and Somalia? Well, a bunch of reasons. Um, but one thing that's that's really exciting right now is that the cost of solar and storage has come down so much that it's actually cheapest to electrify communities that have never had access to power with standalone um, small solar microgrids rather than build out a, a large national um, grid with a, a distribution network to these communities. Um, and so what we're doing is really helping to accelerate um access to energy through a solution that's both um, not increasing fossil fuel use and, and also um, making it making it possible for these communities to get reliable power. So in these small and rural communities, microgrids can actually be an intersection between affordability and green energy. Um, Emily, Odyssey's software platform crunches the huge amounts of data created by smart technologies embedded in microsolar grids, and it presents it in a meaningful way for your clients, which are governments or national energy providers. So how does data leverage the development of cleaner energy? Yeah, exactly. So if you... um 
if you think about many small solar microgrids that are operating, you know, let's say across all of Nigeria, um, those solar microgrids are producing a lot of data that's telling you about how customers are, are accessing power and whether or not they're receiving uh, reliable access to electricity. So we're processing hundreds of millions of data points from each of these microgrids so that we can help our, our users understand uh, and answer answer key questions about whether or not they're meeting their electrification goals. Um, so, so maybe to give an example, the government of Nigeria Nigeria can log into our platform and they can say, how many businesses have been connected to power via solar microgrids in the past six months from you know, our, our programming and, and our financing? Um, or an investor can ask questions like, hey, are the, are the microgrids that I've invested in reliably producing power you know, 99% of the um, hours in the day? Um, and, and all of that's possible because of the, the smart technologies that we're able to pull data from um, at a very granular level. Oh, and Avery, let's turn to building bridges. It's a metaphor that's often used in international development, but your company does exactly that. Was this a solution that seems so obvious that it wasn't tried before? That's a good question. I think the struggle with transportation access is a lot of times we just don't think about it. So in much the same way Emily was just talking about, you know, there is a much more correct way to build out the energy grid in, in, uh, in rural contexts. A lot of us don't even think about how the lights switch on in our rooms and how the roads get us to and from where we need to go. And so last now, access is often forgotten. And I think one of the you know, things that it seems like Emily and I are both passionate about is in the rural context, it's often financially challenging to be able to reach those communities unless you come up with innovative ways to help governments understand why and how this is the most cost-effective money you can spend. There's the most to gain. You know, people that live at the very last mile are, frankly, the folks that are going to have consistently the least, um, you know, healthy children are going to be the least educated. They're also going to have the lowest economic indicators. And so by really targeting and focusing that market segment, you're able to really create the greatest benefit for the lowest cost which is really our purpose of transportation connectivity. And here in the U.S., I think of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge. Those bridges, they transform the communities that use them every day. But so often we take bridges for granted. How many bridges do we cross every day without even thinking about them? <laughs> I did a TED Talk up in Boulder where I actually counted how many bridges did I, did I cross just to go up there. And I'm here in Denver, so not a huge stretch. Um, and I crossed 17 bridges. And there, you know, it really depends where in the in, in the world you live. But I think the average American uh, is crossing dozens. I think I heard up to fifty per day, and we just don't even recognize or appreciate that. And I think you're right. You know, Brooklyn would not be Brooklyn if it didn't have that access, and neither would San Francisco. But even right here in Colorado, you can look at Denver and you know the way that the Lower Highlands area of the community was connected back into. Centennial Park was really informed because of a bridge. Um, so it's really the difference between being able to access the services and goods that exist and not. And it is a pretty catalytic investment for most communities, especially in the rural context. And it's not just geographic closeness as the crow flies. It's really about that accessibility of transportation. I wonder about yep. the challenges for bridges to prosperity and how what obstacles exist in on the ground or in the planning there's a lot. You know, I think when you start to want to really, you know, focus your work in the rural context, you have to think, how do you even get there? So how do you drive to a river where the nearest road really stops several miles short? You can't. So you need to think about procurement of materials. You know, for example, one of our primary structural components is the same cable that you see on a lot of the ski lifts here in Colorado. 
we repurpose that, usually actually off cranes and ports, but you take that cable, you ship it, you get it into whatever country we're working in, Rwanda, Uganda, and then you have to figure out not only how do you get it from the, you know, the port of entry, but to the nearest road, but then you need to get it, you know, several miles walk in. So how do you uncoil something that weighs as much as a car and make sure that you can carry that in by hand? Um, you know, the challenges are pretty innumerable. Wow. And Emily, you credit the success of your company to your diverse team. How does that diversity help Odyssey Energy Solutions in the countries that you work in? Yeah, we have a um, we have a pretty neat team. One one thing that um, is interesting about our, our crew is that we've our, our VP of Engineering, who lives here in Boulder, actually grew up in Tanzania without access to electricity. So very much fundamentally understands. Um, what it means to, to not have reliable access to power, which which informs pretty much everything we do when we think about um, our mission and, and the technologies that we need to build to um, provide power to, to communities across sub-Saharan Africa that don't yet have access to electricity. Um, we've got folks in Rwanda. Um, we've got folks in Nigeria. We even have uh, a team member in, in Israel. And so we're really attacking this from kind of all corners of the world um, because it really is a global, a global problem. There's about a billion people across the world that, that don't have access to reliable power. And Avery and Emily, your companies won two of the 10 Keeling Curve Prizes awarded. Over 300 companies around the world competed. The Global Warming Mitigation Project, which is based in Aspen, funds the prize. And Jackie Francis is the director of the prize. We asked her to explain why Colorado incubates winning companies like yours. One of the things that I think is fantastic about Colorado is that it is being pretty proactive on things that have to do with the climate front. And uh, I think that Colorado has a very uniquely intelligent population as well as a population that really cares about the natural world. And I think that people who care about the natural world are going to be more innovative and excited about solutions involving uh, saving the earth for our future generations. Avery, how will winning the Keeling Curve Prize help Bridges to Prosperity's work and mission? I think that, you know, certainly the financial support is always very welcome, but I think a big part of what Jackie's been able to put together with the Keeling Curve Prize is, you know, a group of individuals that are global in nature that really care deeply about climate action. And for Bridges to Prosperity to be seen as really on that front cutting edge of climate action work is something that definitely helps us not only here maybe in the front range fundraising, but definitely uh, in our in our program countries. So much like Emily's team, you know, 85% of our staff live and work and are from the places where we're trying to really serve. And so to be able to go into the Ministry of Infrastructure or the Ministry of Finance in Rwanda and share with them that we collectively have won this prize on climate action really is fantastic because there's not a country in the world that's not really talking about and trying to take action in this front. And Emily, the same question for you. How will winning the Keeling Curve Prize help Odyssey Energy Solutions? Yeah, I think winning winning Keeling was just incredibly energizing for our whole team. Um, I mean, we we love what we do, but it's really really hard work, and it's it's always nice to just have an opportunity to to step back and be reminded of the bigger picture and the and the impact that we're um, that we're working towards. And what's particularly exciting for us about about Keeling specifically is that um, it recognizes climate impact. So we spend a lot of our time thinking about the economic development impact of bringing electricity to energy poor areas of the world. Um, but 
But Keeling is a nice reminder that we're also fundamentally working towards um, replacing fossil fuel dependent energy sources uh, in in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, before we go, I also want to point out that both of your companies are run by women. I wonder what we can do to motivate more girls and young women to pursue careers in technology and engineering. I mean, I bet Emily and I could fight over the mic right now, but I think we're probably <laughs> both equally passionate about, you know, that you can't be what you can't see. And so I know that both of us have been very active in reaching out to young women and underrepresented minorities. Um, I come from the engineering track, and I think STEM fields more generally are just a fantastic way to, you know, be able to not only identify problems, but help build solutions. And I think that this has been a really exciting career that more women should and will get into. And Emily, I want to give you about 30 seconds to answer the same question. Yeah, I'll say I, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur, and it wasn't until I met my my co-founder, Kathy, um, and we launched this company together. So I, I try and play the same role that Kathy played to me and, and find women to mentor and encourage them to, to take a path that they might not have otherwise considered. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Emily McAteer is CEO of Odyssey Energy Solutions, a software company in Boulder, and Avery Bang is CEO of Bridges to Prosperity in Denver. Each company won the Keeling Curve Prize last week for their efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The western slope town of Ridgeway is best known as the setting for John Wayne's True Grit and the out-of-the-way place where Ralph Lauren was inspired to turn cowboy duds into high fashion. Now Ridgeway has the new and dark distinction. The small town on the edge of the San Juan Mountains is the 28th community in the world and the third in Colorado to be named an international dark sky community. Val Schwark had a lot to do with that. He joins us from his home outside Ridgeway. Welcome, Val. Thank you. Two of Colorado's three dark sky towns, Norwood and Ridgeway, are located 40 miles apart on the western slope. I understand you played a big part in earning both of those designations. Why are you such a promoter of dark skies? Well, I have a uh, background in, in earth and atmospheric sciences, and also I'm an amateur astronomer uh, with the emphasis on amateur. Uh, Colorado, especially in the western slope area, is blessed with a dark sky resource, and there's an international organization, the International Dark Sky Association, that sometimes we just refer to as IDA, promotes preservation of dark skies throughout the, the world. And I got hooked up with some folks in Norwood to, um, to help with Norwood's uh, application and the preparation for that, and that's kind of where I got hooked on preserving this natural resource that we still have out in western Colorado. I love this idea of the dark as a resource. And I should mention here that Westcliff and neighboring Silvercliff in southeast Colorado earned the state's first designation as an international dark sky community in 2016. Is a dark sky designation about more than just having an inky black firmament overhead? Uh, well, it's an award or a designation that recognizes a community's stewardship in preserving the night sky and having having a rigorous lighting ordinance to only light your homes or your building parking lots only as much as you need um, and not to waste light, not to waste energy. Um, and uh, preserving a dark sky is not only important for just preservation of the dark starry skies for ourselves, but, but also for wildlife and for insects, which require very pristine dark 
dark skies for navigation and just their, their own life cycles. So tell me more about how light pollution affects plants and wildlife and even the health of humans. Yeah, well, in terms of humans, we're all programmed to respond to sunlight, which has a color temperature of about 55, 5600 degrees Kelvin. And so if we see that sort of light from LEDs at night, it's basically tricking our brain into that we're seeing sunlight at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the evening that interrupts our sleep cycles. In terms of wildlife and insects, it's, it's something, again, they need dark skies to migrate properly and to um, go through their own life cycles properly. Um, one classic example is sea turtles. The life cycle of sea turtles is when the eggs hatch and, and the small turtles come out, is that the first thing they look for is a light source, and they like to find a light source from stars on it. If you see condos or, or resorts lit up on the coast, then they, they go inland instead of going out to sea, and that, that interrupts their, their life cycle and, and, and increases their mortality. How dark does a place have to be to be designated a dark sky community? Can you still have street lights and lighted business signs and maybe those trendy light strings on your patios? Yeah, you could still have lights. It doesn't mean that you have to be totally dark. The important thing is to have a rigorous lighting ordinance in place that that limits, for instance, um, the amount of the, how bright your lights can be. Um, also uh, specifies a color temperature of 3,000 degrees Kelvin or, or less. So 3,000 will be a, a kind of a yellowish, slightly yellowish light. 2,500, 2,700 might be just a little bit more orange or a little bit darker yellow, but they want to avoid the um, LEDs that are very close to sunlight, like 5,000 or 4,500 4, 4, degrees Kelvin, which will appear very white or even bluish white as they get up to the... 5,500 degrees. Some of the other things is that you could, you certainly can have street lights, but you want to have them shielded such that, that all the light is is, is uh, directed downward. Uh, same with your residential and homes and businesses is to have all your lighting directed downward and, and minimize lighting going uh, up into the sky. That's so interesting that even the temperature of the light matters. And I suppose that this is somewhat self-explanatory, but what is a dark sky designation? Well, a dark sky designation is at the time that series of criteria. And that criteria is, is they do have a, a rigorous lighting ordinance in place that meets IDA guidelines, the International Dark Sky Association guidelines. It also, you need to have educational um, uh, outreach events and, and um, educational brochures and community support letters from key uh, organizations, for instance, your, your local government. County commissioners, and finally, is that you need a a sky brightness measurement program that focuses on determining how dark it is. And how do you measure the darkness of the sky? Typically, uh, handheld instrument is used that measures photons. It's referred to as a sky quality meter or SQM. Smaller numbers are brighter. So, uh, in a very very dark location, for instance, uh, in some of the Remote corners here in Uray County, uh, we can get numbers of about 21.9. Urban communities like the Front Range, like Denver, Boulder, uh, Fort Collins, for instance, is that in downtown areas, they might have readings of about 18.5 or so. 
um, and that's a couple orders of magnitude brighter in terms of the number of photons. So there's a lot that goes into earning this designation. It took Ridgeway about two years. And what will this designation actually do for Ridgeway? Will it draw tourists? Will astronomers flock to your town? It can attract some some additional tourism, some, some eco-tourism, if you will, or astro-tourism, because um, it puts Ridgeway on a map that, that you know, it's designated as a dark sky community. Um, but Ridgeway you know, doesn't have parks that are, that are you know, far out of town within the town limits for astronomers to, to set up their equipment. The application for a dark sky designation lists four priorities. One is to celebrate the night. That sounds so festive. What does that actually mean to celebrate the night? That's basically is to, to bring some awareness to the benefits of, of, of dark uh, night sky um, and, and also to point out how, how it's an urgent environmental threat. It's uh, many people uh, may not consider um, a night's uh, illuminated light, light sky as an environmental threat, especially for folks that maybe live most of their life or all their life on the East Coast, or West Coast, or maybe the Front Range that that really may may have not seen the Milky Way um, until they come out to to the West Slope and to a dark location and and see that streaming cloud across the sky, and so it's it's really to, to bring awareness to. Um, the fact that, that that's an environmental consideration that, that we ought to think about preserving um, like we try to preserve the, the air, the clean air that we breathe and clean water that we drink. And that designation in July, it came at a really opportune time. Did the comet Neowise look particularly stunning over Ridgeway? Yes, it has been. A number of us have been out taking photographs of it. I've, I have a number of photographs taken of it in early July. Um, and um, and so that's that's one of the benefits uh, of living again uh, in a in a in an area that has a, has a dark sky. It's fading rapidly right now, but in early July it was visible in the early morning, and and middle of July it was it was visible in the uh, in the evening around ten o'clock, ten thirty, uh, near the Big Dipper. And I understand that the Dark Sky International also has a designation for parks. In Colorado, we have Dark Sky designation for the Great Sand Dunes, the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, Hovensweep National Monument, and Dinosaur National Monument. You're working on adding a much lesser-known park near Ridgeway. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's what, what some of our latest projects is to to designate Top of the Pines. It's a recreation area or a park uh, about 175 acres in Uray County, and as I mentioned, about six miles south of Ridgeway. And and um, recently, I nominated it as a dark sky park, um, and IDA accepted that nomination. So we're working towards towards uh, an application for for top of the pines. And the skies are very pristine there. You cannot see any lights any in any direction. It'll be a perfect place for amateur astronomers to come and and take some great photographs of the sky, the Milky Way. And, in fact, I had some luck here in the last couple months of doing just that. And so um, it rivals some of the best photography in the western U.S. Val, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Val Schmark helped earn international's dark sky designations for the western slope towns of Norwood and Ridgeway. He joined us from his home outside Ridgeway. 
Finally, the COVID shutdown has sidelined touring musicians and inspired many to livestream performances from their living rooms and backyards. But few have as stunning of a view as the Rocky Mountain landscape Neil Young has from Telluride, Colorado. That's where he's been hunkering down during the pandemic and releasing a series of solo acoustic sets that he's dubbed the Fireside Sessions. As the title suggests, these performances usually feature Young strumming his guitar out by a campfire surrounded by Colorado. Colorado's natural beauty. The videos are filmed by his wife, actress Daryl Hannah, on her iPad. Thank you. On a recent barnyard edition, Young performs to an audience of horses, llamas, and chickens. This is the title track to Young's long-lost album Homegrown, which he just released in June, roughly 46 years after its original recording. The Fireside Sessions feature a lot of deep cuts and songs that he rarely performs live, including this cover of Bob Dylan's The Times They Are A-Changin'. Come senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway and don't hide in the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. There's a battle outside and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are changing. Come mothers and fathers throughout the land. And don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend a hand. For the times, they are changing. Neil Young with the timely rendition of Bob Dylan's The Times, They Are Changing. You can see a video of Young performing from his Telluride home. We'll tweet the link at Colorado Matters. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lowe, CPR News.